good morning uh, again from me and uh, we turn to God's word now. So if you have your Bibles close to hand, maybe uh, turn to Genesis 22, which we'll be looking at in a moment. But we continue this morning our new series on name above all names, uh, looking at the different names of God. And uh, what is in a name? Uh, Well, in the Bible, as many of you will know, names have great importance and significance. They can be uh, descriptive of the character of a person, even prophetic. And uh, in the West, names don't have quite the same significance as they did historically in the Near East. Although they still have significance, I imagine many of you, when naming your children, uh, thought carefully about the names that you were going to give them. I can remember I've got two children, uh, Lucy and James, as some of you will know. Lucy's now 24 and uh, James is 21. And I can remember shortly after Lucy was born... Debbie and I had been thinking, as, uh, as parents do, about names, and uh, we decided pretty much that Charlotte was going to be the name. And after Lucy was born, and I was cradling her in the, the birth room uh, in my hands and looking at her, and I looked down to her, I said, uh, you don't really look like a Charlotte, do you, Lucy? And it just popped out, this name. And I thought, where did that come from? It wasn't even on our list. And so before we went for the name, I wanted to check the, uh, the etymology of it. And so in those days, it was pre-smartphone. And so the next morning, I hot-footed it to a bookshop to actually look up the name Lucy and try and understand the origin. And the origin of that word is from uh, the Latin Lucia, and it means light. And I thought, well, that works for me. And uh, we wanted to be careful that the names that we gave our children were uh, relevant and important And uh, sometimes people even uh, live out their names, even now. My wife, Debbie, uh, Debbie is from a Hebrew Deborah, means busy as a bee, it's very apt. And so names have loads of significance, and even more so for God. Because God reveals his character uh, through his names. Now Mark very helpfully said in his introduction to this series that God reveals himself in all of creation and in all of his names. And God's names, if you like, are equal to his total uh, revelation. Although it's not possible for us to know God completely because he's eternal, we can know him truly, and God's names give us a hand with that. But as Grantley said last week, God is not God's name. And so God is a term that we use uh, for God, but God's proper name, as you'll see coming up on the slide now, is Yahweh. And this uh, uh, Hebrew word of four consonants, the tetragrammaton, as it's known uh, in theology, four consonants, Y-H-W-H, the proper name of God. Now, this uh, term Yahweh is used uh, nearly 7,000 times, 6,828 times in the Old Testament, and uh, it means I am or I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And it hints something towards God's self-existence, his independence, his self-sufficiency, his eternity, his unchanging character. Uh, There was never a time when nothing existed. God has always existed, and our God is the God who is. And Yahweh powerfully gives us a sense of this ever-existing God. Now, of course, there are many names in the Bible uh, that God goes by. In fact, when Jesus uses these famous I am statements in the Gospels, he's really referring to himself as Yahweh. Um, But we've been looking, or we're about to look in this series, at nine specific um, variations of Yahweh, or if you like, nine additional words that are added in the Bible to this core name of Yahweh. 
So we see often in the Bible that God can be our shepherd or our peace or our healer. But today we're going to be looking at Yahweh Yaira. I am your provider. Now, some of you might be familiar with uh, this as a Jehovah Jireh, as it was sometimes referred to. We know now that Yahweh is a more accurate uh, translation of the previous transliteration, uh, Jehovah. But Yahweh Yireh means that God will provide. And actually, it's a place also. Uh, it's a place in the land of Moriah. It's the location where uh, Isaac was bound before he was supposedly going to be sacrificed before God uh, delivered him. And it was Abraham who gave that place the name when the Lord uh, delivered a ram in Isaac's place. God did something in time at a place on planet Earth and that event revealed something of who God is in this name Yahweh Yaira. So we're going to be really focusing on one verse this morning, and that is Genesis 22, verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Yahweh Yaira, as it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now I thought it'd be useful to look at the whole context of this uh, sacrificial uh, moment in the Old Testament. So we're going to pick it up, and if you've got a Bible, the verses will come on the screen anyway, but feel free to follow along in your own Bible if you want. We'll read from verse uh, 1 through to verse 14 in Genesis chapter 22, and you should see the words come up on the screen. After these things, God tested Abram and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Yahweh Yairah. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. 
Now, this is a, a difficult passage in one sense, and very dramatic, and one of the most theologically important sections of the Old Testament, certainly of the book of Genesis. And it's the last great test of the faith of Abraham. Really in a par with his initial faith in being called out of um, safety, security, and comfort where he lived to become a, an itinerant twen- uh, tent dweller. And we're told in the scriptures here that it was a test that God was testing Abraham. And although we know that, what we've got to remember is for Abraham, this was 100% real. Appalling, really, emotionally and theologically, that Isaac, on whom all the promises were going to rest, this was the son of promise, this was meant to be uh, the the person from whom uh, the promised people were going to come, and uh, God is asking for Abraham to sacrifice him. Uh, It must have been appalling for Abraham, as it maybe would be even for us, reading it, not knowing what was going to come uh, later. Seemingly uh, cruel. The pathos of the solitary sort of ascent up the mount. uh, The symbology of Isaac carrying the wood on his back, as Christ would later carry the cross on his shoulders. The painful process of binding him, the last minute intervention of God. In fact, this is one of the sort of, you know, the most dramatic stories, some would say, in all world literature. Uh, the power and economy of the words to communicate what's going on. Now, it's God's aim to test um, Abraham, and God does test. He doesn't tempt, the Bible says. He doesn't tempt us, but he does sometimes test us. And part of that is to show that he, Yahweh, can be trusted. Now, Abraham's immediate response is to do what God directs, and uh, that meets with God's approval. God provides the sacrifice that's needed, the ram in uh, Isaac's place, and uh, Abraham discovers this new name for God, uh, Yahweh Yireh, that God will provide. Uh, it also um, gives a sense of, uh, the, the word um, Yireh has the sense of seeing as well. It's almost like God will see to it. God will make sure it is done. Now Abraham also showed that he could be trusted Uh, James says in the New Testament, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. And in verse 12, God himself says, for I now know that you fear God. So Abraham proves that he can be trusted and God is going to show his trustworthiness too. So here I think is, is the first lesson for us in our own Christian walk, that God's severe testing sometimes are a chance for us to prove our faith, but also for God to prove his faithfulness to us. Testings are a chance for us to prove our faith, but also for God to prove his faithfulness to us. And God always passes the test. Now, what can we sort of learn or model um, from Abraham's behavior? Well, I I think six things, and you'll see them come up uh, on the slide now. So I think there's six insights that I'd like to spend a little time just looking at. Um, How does Abraham approach the situation? Well, first of all, we need to be ready, be prompt, be worshipful, trusting, resolute, and thankful. So let's take each of those in turn. First of all, Abraham is ready. Now, verse 1, he's called by God, Abraham, and he answers, here I am. Now, this is a, a word in the Hebrew, hinanai, uh, and it's, it's, it's hard in a sense to convey the immediacy of it. It's translated, here I am, that's a great translation of what it is. But it's a sort of a total readiness or an all-in 
So when Abraham says, here I am, he says, I'm all yours, God. I'm available. What is it I can do for you? So he is ready to answer the call of God when it comes. Second thing is, he is prompt. It says that uh, Abraham rose early in the morning, in the text in verse 3. And uh, once God gives the call, as difficult as it is, Abraham doesn't dilly-dally, he doesn't delay, he doesn't prevaricate, he doesn't hold on and um and ah. The next morning, crack of dawn, he's up and he's heading up the mountain. Now the question for us is, you know, how ready are we and how promptly do we answer the call of God when it comes? As difficult as this is, Abraham's response is immediate. The third insight is that he is worshipful in his approach. Verse 5 says that he says to his young men that he's brought with him, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Now, even though Abraham's been asked to do something confusing, difficult, seemingly dreadful, he is going to worship God. But he's also trusting God. I don't know if you pick up in the verse there when he says, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Abraham fully expects that both he and Isaac will return to the men. Now, how can this be? God has asked him to sacrifice Isaac and he's heading up with the wood and the fire, ready to carry out seemingly uh, this terrible sort of uh, command. And yet he's saying to his men, I and the boy will return to you. He is trusting God full of faith that somehow God will save the day. Now, Abraham is somebody who's already experienced God's sort of resurrection power in his old body. As he and his wife uh, into their 90s uh, have a son in the first place. And uh, I think Sarah was, uh, Sarah was 90 and uh, Abraham was older than that. And so in their seemingly dead bodies, God had already sort of injected new life for them to have this child of the promise, Isaac. And uh, Abraham is able to use that, in a sense, to trust that God can do miraculous things. Hebrews 11, verse 9, supplies a little insight on this. It says, He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, at this point, nobody had ever seen a, a resurrection. Nobody had ever seen anyone coming back from the dead. And yet Abraham was trusting somehow that God would do this. Abraham was also able to answer Isaac's question confidently as well. When Isaac said, you've got the fire, you've got the wood, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide it. Now, I don't know whether he was, you know, trembling in his speech as he said that to his son Isaac, but he was trusting God. The fourth thing is that he was uh, resolute. Now, verse 9 and 10 uh, tells us that uh, even though he's been asked to sacrifice the son of the covenant, he sets his face to the mountain. He heads to the appointed place. He builds the altar. He arranges the wood. He binds uh, Isaac. He uh, stretches out his hand even with the knife before God steps in and intervenes just in the nick of time. And the final insight that is that he is thankful. Now, that might seem the most obvious one that after all of this that he can be thankful. Maybe it's the sort of outworking of the faith that at the end he can be uh, thankful. But the gratitude for God's provision is really conveyed in this name, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide, the Lord has seen to it. 
Interestingly, when Abraham names this place, he doesn't name it after himself. He doesn't name it, uh, well, Abraham believed. Uh, he names it that God provided. So God has provided and Abraham is faithful. Now, what is the, the second lesson here for us? Well, I think that if God is the provider, we should be the proven. You see, there is a test here to Abraham's faith, and he comes through with flying colors, and God provides. The context for God's provision is obedience. Now, we know that God is a provider and that God wants to provide for our needs, but the context is the obedience of Abraham. And the angel of the Lord then appears. This is uh, just as a small side note, a theophany, uh, which, you know, are Christophany, as they're sometimes referred to, a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, sometimes referred to as the angel of the Lord, uh, turns up and declares that after Abraham's obedience, that the promises God have made, has made are guarantees now. And it says in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, because myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you've not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand as of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so God underscores all the promises that he's made to Abraham because he has obeyed God's voice. Now, so how do we uh, take some learnings from this to apply to our own walk? Well, we've already looked at, at six outlines of, you know, what we need to do in terms of being ready and being worshipful and so forth. But uh, also there's a few additional insights, I think, here. So here are a couple of questions. First of all, where does God provide our needs? If we know that God is the provider, where does God provide our needs? Well, Abraham is in the right place at the right time because he's being obedient to God. And I don't think we have the right to expect the provision of God if we're not in the will of God. The provision is in the context of Abraham being in the will of God. When does God meet our needs? Well, it seems not a minute before we need it. Now, not just in this uh, example, but oftentimes in the, the Bible, we'll see God coming in uh, just at the last minute, or what seems like just at the last minute, but in God's timing at the perfect time. And uh, you may have experienced some of this in your own Christian walk. I can remember when we came up to Norfolk many uh, years ago, when we came to live here, we were living at that point in London or in Amersham, in Buckinghamshire, and uh, we had uh, we had sold our house and we'd bought a house up here. In fact, we'd we'd bought a house that was being built uh, up here, and we were really sure that God wanted us to be in Norfolk, and so uh, we made some real uh, commitments to that because I didn't yet have a job up here. My work was still in, in London, and uh, but we thought you know God would uh, sort that out and provide, and so in faith we we bought the house and we we sold our house in Amersham. And we had two little problems. Uh, one was that in coming up here, we were going to need two cars. Uh, we only had one at the time. And we didn't have enough money after building the house for the second car. And we had a little bit of shortage of money just to finish off some of the things that were built in the house. And uh, we thought, well, we're not quite sure how we're going to sort of get around that one. And then in Amersham, uh, our house fell through. Uh, the house that we had uh, sold 
Uh, and we'd bought the new house up here or committed to buy it before, uh, in faith, before the house had completed in Amersham and the, the sale fell through uh, just the, the day before completion or the day before exchange of contracts. And then we thought, oh no, what is, actually we were really quite, oh no, uh, uh, what's going to happen here? Now we're going to have two houses that we can't afford and uh, so forth. Um, anyhow, we put the house back on the market and within a week we'd resold it for more money and the difference was enough, you guessed it, to buy the second car and finish the work in the house. But that was just, just in time as it were. And, and I'm sure you, as many people will do, is have lots of stories of how God's provision comes just at the last minute. But what I think that means is that we can relax and rest that if we are being obedient to God's will, that his provision will come in time, just in time. And God's timing is always perfect. Now, how does God provide for us? That's an interesting question. So we know that, you know, when and why God provides, but uh, how does God provide for us? And I think the answer from this story is actually quite naturally. So God doesn't send down an, an, an angel with the, the ram. There is a ram caught in the thickets at the right time. And uh, he doesn't send a flock. He sends a, a single one. And so I think actually quite practically and quite normally, God can provide. There's a, a famous historic joke of a man of faith who um, gets um, shipwrecked and uh, as he's uh, holding on to a piece of wood in the water and praying to God for uh, rescue, suddenly a, a small ship sails by and shouts to him, can we help you? He says, no, I'm waiting for God. And uh, shortly after that, a helicopter goes over with a, a ladder dropped down and says, you know, uh, come and grab this. He says, no, I'm waiting for God. And uh, when he drowns and arrives in heaven, he says to God, what happened? And God said, well, didn't you get the boat and the helicopter I sent? Now, everyone's heard the joke, but, but the point is that God provides provision of times naturally, not supernaturally. And uh, we should be ready to, to accept those. Final question, or penultimate one at least, is to whom does God give his provision? And I think the answer is to those who trust and obey his instructions. When God's work is done in God's way, it will not lack God's support. When God's work is done in God's way, it will not lack God's support. And uh, God is obligated, actually, to step in when we are um, carrying out his wishes. And so I think God provides for those um, to whom are obeying his instructions. Final one is why does God provide for our every need? So we, we know from the story and uh, from much of the Bible that God is a provider. But uh, why? Well, maybe because he loves us, and that's certainly true, but really for his glory. That is the thing, that God has glorified himself in providing for us and meeting our needs. Now, finally, in looking at the story, and possibly most importantly, we know that Abraham didn't withhold his own son, uh, but this is actually a foreshadowing of a more significant event with more eternal and cosmic consequences, because God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. And Isaac is a type of Christ. Isaac is a foreshadowing, or at least what happened on the mount is a foreshadowing. And uh, the idea of the ram being sacrificed in his place, well, ultimately we know that Jesus is that substitutionary lamb. 
Listen to what it says in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us that in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know, I think the heartache of Abraham in this story is just maybe a a glimpse into the, the pain and heartache that the father must have felt at this moment too, knowing that he himself was going to send his son to die in our place. John certainly had this in mind when he saw Jesus and declared, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I don't know if you've ever realized that uh, when Jesus in in John 8 is talking about, using these I am statements, and he says, before Abraham was, I am, he says before that, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham saw Christ's day in that sacrificial atonement, substitutionary atonement of the ram, which uh, prefigured a greater substitutionary atonement. Many years later, a man aged 33, a carpenter from Nazareth, would also have his head caught in the thorns and die in our place. The real, the real provision of God is not the provision that we think of for our bodily or spiritual or relational needs. The real provision is in his son, as the substitutionary atonement for our sin. Paying the penalty for our sin, standing in our place, punished instead of us, dying so that we could be free. We know now because of uh, what we see in the story in Genesis 22 that uh, it's a greater telling of the fact that we'll be delivered out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of life. What is God really providing? What is God really offering us? Well, freedom, forgiveness, release from bondage, cleansing. That is the real provision uh, that Yahweh Yaira hints at. We know from Philippians that it says that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. So what can we say to this? Well, our only answer can be to respond in obedience. We know from Abraham that the core of the message is that he was ready to act and respond to what God was calling him to do. It was difficult as an understatement. And for us too, God is calling us to be ready to respond, to be all in to answer his call, and that he will provide he'll provide for our needs to serve him and he has provided for our need for forgiveness and cleansing and wholeness in the sacrificial death of the lord jesus christ what then can we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously Give us all things. Go forth this week 
in trust in God, in obedience, ready, and see his provision. Amen.